The results are in, and they've been in for quite some time. Research-based instructional strategies, including what we often call active learning, are very effective. Students do indeed learn more and retain knowledge longer, yet studies have shown that an alarming number of faculty quit using these methods after an initial trial. And this is among the faculty who actually use these strategies. Many educators retain traditional methods that focus on lecture. Adding to this challenge is the idea that students actually might prefer a polished lecture over active learning. They feel like they've learned more in the lecture, despite evidence that points to the contrary. Yikes. So if these research-based strategies work, why aren't they widely adopted? How do we get everyone on board, both faculty and students? What resources do we need to help educators make the switch and stay the course? My guest today, Louis Delarier, has some answers, but he full well admits that it is not easy. We wrestle with these ideas for quite some time, so much so that this interview was split into two episodes. If you enjoy the first half of this conversation, then please continue along with us in part two. But now I think I hear some theme music coming in. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Louis Delarier, Director of Science Teaching and Learning and Senior Preceptor in Physics at Harvard University. I'm quite excited to talk with him after discovering a few of his papers. His work has been close, uh, looking closely at why more educators have not adopted active learning approaches, why they don't stick with it if they try it, and why students are resistant as well. So, Louis, welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Yes. Hi, Brad. Uh, thank you very much for uh, the invite. I'm happy to be here to talk to you about uh, various topics in science education, uh, something I'm definitely you know, passionate about. Uh, in fact, when you say, um, real quick here, when you say that uh, instructors and students are resistant to active learning, I must say that while there's going to be a lot of folks that will say that's absolutely true, you'll find many others that will say that's not true. And you know what? They're both right. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, and, and the reasons why, by the way, are not trivial. And uh, so I hope that we'll have a chance to dis discuss that in more details today. Oh, absolutely. You, you have my, my interest peaked. So I often like to start with a, a moment of gratitude. So who has been an important mentor in your life and career and what role have they played in shaping your path? Yeah, so of course in life, a lot of mentors, but uh, when it comes to science education, uh, I would say it's, uh, it's Carl Wyman. He was a great teacher and I learned a lot from him. Um, and more recently, I would say uh, Eric Mazur. Um, I, I got to know him quite well in the last few years and uh, and I've learned a lot from him as well. I, I feel like that that alone is going to be a, a segue for, for where we're going next. So I'm always curious how researchers and educators find their way into physics education research. It, it often seems to be through a side, do side door. It wasn't the original primary pursuit, but somehow it infiltrated the psyche. Uh, you, you seem to not be an exception to this role. You have an MSc in electrical engineering, a PhD in applied physics, and you completed postdoctoral work in atomic interferometry at Stanford University. And yet, here you are, a director of science teaching and learning, 
and publishing important work on active learning in the physics classroom. So what doorway or opportunity led you to education research? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, near the end of my, of my postdoc, I was looking at uh, faculty positions in atomic physics. And, uh, and in fact, quite specifically, I, since I really like teaching, like most people who you know, end up in physics education, uh, you know, do obviously, uh, like teaching, I was looking at four-year colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having a, uh, a long conversation with the chair at uh, Amherst. And anyway, um, I remember him uh, urging me to actually learn more about, uh, you know, science education. And anyway, so <clears throat> when I talked to uh, Carl Weinman, um, he was telling me that, yes, I should spend a year or two to learn about the science of, you know, learning. And that this would actually be uh, very helpful when I do get a faculty position in atomic physics. Um, <clears throat> but what really sold me, actually, I, I, I do remember, is one thing he told me. Um, I remember him telling me that, that he found science education to be just as intellectually stimulating as atomic physics, because he's mm. an atomic physicist, uh, just as I was, and to be just as challenging. And you know what? I remember at the time being you know, quite surprised by this because mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the science of learning, to be quite honest. I, I knew nothing about this. So, But still, coming from him, I knew that this had to be the case. So that was the hook for me. And uh, so then I, uh, you know, I basically uh, started to work with him. And uh, yeah, within about a year or so, I, I started to see what he meant that, yeah, it's incredibly interesting and yes i would say it's even more i think that's what he had said at the time that it's more he found it more challenging than physics research and i would say that i agree is that a commentary on the challenges of working with students (laughs) or the challenges of working with faculty members maybe that's it (laughs) yeah actually sure Sure. Obviously, these things can be very challenging in their own right. But uh, no, the, the, the science of itself, of learning, is uh, it's actually quite complicated. Like when you start thinking about how retention works, mm-hmm. how memory works. I mean, at least for someone like me, like us, right? We're not uh, cognitive psychologists. So then we have to learn about, you know, you know the you know the the science basically of how the brain works that that's complicated just in itself then you have to learn about uh, you know classroom research that's complicated in itself the methodology and everything so there's so many things that uh, yeah that are quite complex independent from working with instructors and students yeah it's interesting that to think that you know a field like interferometry might have been around for 100, 200 years in, in a way, going back to some of the early experiments and the developments of quantum mechanics and and and, and then through the, the 20th century. And brain science is not that advanced. Uh, it, it's taken some of these these advanced tools for us to start beginning to to monitor what's happening in the brain to see what's going on there. So in a way, this, I guess, cognitive psychology is is maybe in a mere infancy. And there's so much yet to learn and so much new that's coming out. It is, Brad. In fact, uh, I don't want to get carried away here, but, but that is something <laughs> that, that fascinates me because um, uh, I try to learn as much as I can. You know? So you learn about, you know, for example, just 
let's look at uh, cognitive psychology. You learn that uh, you know, you learn about memory research, say, and um, and these experiments are very clean and they're done in the laboratory, right? And one could argue that that you know, when you learn about these things, it's not that different from say, you know, learning about quantum mechanics. However, now you're dealing with uh, you know you know, subjects that are more complex than English Swahili word pairs, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very popular in memory research. All of us now you're dealing with students learning complex ideas and everything. And I mean, people don't really understand how this works. So a way that I'd like to explore this a little bit is is sort of a a tour through some of what you have learned over the past decade through the lens of some of the papers on which you've been an author. So we'll start with an article that, that you, Ellen Shalu, and Carl Wyman published in the journal Science just over 10 years ago titled Improved Learning in a Large Enrollment Physics Class. And actually, you had another study that year with Carl titled Learning and Retention of Quantum Concepts with Different Teaching Methods that proved a similar point. These studies had a, a David and Goliath feel uh, for me is like take an award-winning professor who taught solely by lecture and compare their their test results with those of a novice teacher which i guess was you (laughs) uh at at the time uh using elements such as pre-class readings and quizzes in-class clicker questions with discussions small group active learning tasks and in-class feedback i'm sure my listeners can already guess what you found but um, i want to hear about what prompted these studies in the first place and and what were were some of the key takeaways that you remember from that yeah that's a heck of a good question because of course you know active learning was found to be more effective <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no what prompted it actually is I, I think is interesting to talk about so if you go back in time a little over 10 years ago yes lots of studies showing that you know evidence-based active learning um, is more effective than traditional lectures. But there are two things in particular that I remember finding quite interesting and that were missing. Um, so one is that studies that compared um, active learning to traditional lectures, at least the, you know how much students learn from these things, they, they uh, as a measure, they use either a final exam or concept test of learning at the end of, at the end of a semester. So when you do that, then you confound the learning that takes place in the classroom with learning that takes place outside of the classroom. That's a big problem. I mean, right? Like, what is the time on task every week for students in one of our physics course? Well, during lecture, it's maybe three hours. But in homework, it's five to six hours, you know, maybe double. So students learn a lot more outside of the classroom. So again, when you go back and you use a final exam or end of semester concept survey, then you're measuring learning, you know, with homework, reading the textbook, discussion section, labs, in addition to measuring learning in the classroom. So right there, you see there's a problem. So the idea with that first study, the one that was published in science, was to isolate learning that takes place in the classroom only, right? Traditional lecture, mm, active okay. learning. That was the main thing that I was after. The other thing that, uh, that bothered me at the time um, was that the studies that compared the effectiveness of active learning to traditional lectures did not compare active learning to the best traditional lectures. Okay, if you think about, uh, this is a big problem, by the way, if you really think about this, uh, if you think about most of us, you know, we're average 
you know, traditional lecturers, right? When we speak to our students, uh, some of us are, you know, less than average. <laughs> I, would, I would put myself <laughs> in that category. So it's not surprising if uh, an average traditional lecturer starts using a robust form of active learning like clicker questions. It's not surprising that it'll result in better learning outcomes, right? So a lot of these studies mm -hmm. were like that. So something I was really interested in doing is comparing a robust form of active learning to the best possible traditional lectures or a really mm -hmm. good, right? So that the, the results actually are meaningful. So in fact, let's look at the flip side here. Um, so whenever there's a poor implementation of active learning, and this unfortunately is not uncommon, uh, a lot of negations right there. So students probably learn more from a clear, well-paced traditional lecture. And maybe that comes as a surprise. But uh, hmm. uh, yeah, sometimes when I see a poor implementation of active learning, um, you know, I, I do tell people, you know, why don't you go back to traditional lectures just for this semester? And then you can actually examine, you know, what went wrong. Mm. It does happen. Well, sometimes. yeah. Yeah, yeah. After two, three weeks, a semester starts. Someone comes in, you know, running, <laughs> saying, hey, there's clearly a problem here. I'm getting student complaints and so forth. And then I just go to class one time and I can see, okay, this is this is not working. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you need more training or something like this. So mm -hmm. Yeah. Back to traditional lectures. And in fact, when they do go back, they do tell me, uh, okay, things went better. And of course, whenever I have time, uh, of course, I will train the person on the fly. Anyway, the science paper. Um, so what we did is, uh, you know, talking about results here, is that we took two large sections of an intro physics course. It was an ENM course. Each of those sections were 300 students, right? So it was very large. And for one week and one week only, okay, we compared how much students learn in one section versus the other, where one section students receive a really good, you know, traditional treatment, and it was three lectures, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And in the other section, students receive a robust form of active learning, the, the, the type of active learning that, uh, that we developed uh, with Carl. Um, so, and in fact, not surprisingly, students learn more, of course, from the, uh, you know, from the, in the section with, you know, with active learning. Um, but what I think surprised people is um, how much more they learned. In fact, it was 2.5 standard deviations more. And I remember mm. at the time people being, you know, really surprised by this and thinking, you know, this is so much more than what's been measured before. But if you think about this, as I've already mentioned, um, if you really isolate the learning that, you know, that is in the classroom, um, then you find that the signal that you get is not diluted with the additional learning that takes place outside the classroom, which all the other studies had. So that's why the effect was so large. So that, that's why when other people did the same thing, they saw just as big a signal. Well, I don't know if it was just as big, but a very large signal. The other study that you mentioned, I, I, and I like that other study even more, by the way, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it did not receive as much attention. Yeah, 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 I liked the other study more. So the one that took place in the quantum mechanics course, in that study, we studied retention of learning. And I hope we have a chance to discuss that a little bit uh, in the podcast today. So instead of two large sections in the course, um, we uh, compared learning uh, in one semester 
where students receive a traditional treatment to learning uh, the following semester where students receive the active learning treatments. So in that sense, it was not as well controlled, but, uh, you know, students were exposed to the same information and so forth. So it, it was not that bad. But the point here, again, is that we looked at retention. So at the end of each semester, we use a concept survey that was validated and everything on quantum mechanics. And then, of course, we found that students that received the active treatment, they did learn more in that semester than students who received the traditional treatment. That part's not surprising. But the part that was a bit surprising, um, well, not that surprising to call an eye, but still um, pretty cool, is that 18 months later, a year and a half later, the amount of conceptual understanding that student had at the end of the semester remain more or less the same 18 months later. I remember seeing that in the paper and I thought that was, that was surprising for it, especially for something as, as challenging as, as quantum mechanics. And, and I know I, I remember reading in the paper that was one of the reasons you, you picked that course because it's something that students probably wouldn't have a chance to learn more about along the way. So they wouldn't get more, they, they wouldn't get it sort of refreshed over time between six months or 18 months later. Uh, so, but the fact that a lot of it was retained, what whatever they gained, what was retained, uh, was actually very encouraging to see that that was the case. So, to see that active learning does a better job, and then they actually retain it, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but between you and I, that doesn't really match what seems to happen when students take mm -hmm. a course, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason why is that we measured the conceptual understanding. So the, the test of learning was deeply conceptual. Mm -hmm. So, and again, I, like I said, I, this is one of my favorite study, right? So I have to be careful not to, you know, work myself into a frenzy here, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah. So, so the reason why, in fact, students will, will tell you, or you will observe students three weeks after a course, uh, over Christmas break, for example, um, students will tell you that, uh, yeah, they forget uh, a lot of what they learn in the course, even a month later. And you know what they do? And that's because information is either encoded, um, you know, factually, or it's encoded conceptually. And of course, it's somewhere, most of the information is encoded as a combination of both here. But for example, when students learn how to solve uh, the Schrodinger equation, right, like a partial differential equation, if students learn that as just a set of procedures, then it might as well be a set of phone numbers. And the research on that, again, from cognitive psychology is very clear, okay, the repeatable over and over. Factual information gets lost within a few weeks. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But students that encode the information conceptually, that is a lot more robust over time. So that's why what we measured was retained more or less the same 18 months later because we measured you know, strong conceptual ideas in quantum mechanics. That's why. So again, I'm not going to get carried away here, but I just want to say, doesn't that inform how we should teach our courses? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it right? makes me think there's like the implications of that are to, yeah, to really, really hone in on the conceptual aspects and know that, yeah, you'll still, you'll still, you know, look at different equations, do some of the problem solving, but recognize that you know, some of that will fall away, but if a, 
if a student then goes into a profession where they need to use it constantly, it will get reinforced and they, they will retain that. But that deep conceptual piece is the piece we need to work on. That's, that's right. That's kind of what I'm taking. Wow, that's, that's really fascinating. I have, like, I'm, I'm trying not to uh, chime in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, the links to all your papers will, will be posted on my show notes. So I, I definitely encourage folks to go and check out anything we talk about today. But I, I think, I, I agree, that is a paper that I thought, um, just for my reading, had really interesting results and, and is definitely worth a read. Um, but, but Hey, Brad, I can't help myself. I'm just going to say this, okay? <laughs> Do it. Go for I'm, it. I'm, just, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to say this. Um, so retention of learning is something that's almost absent from, let's call it, uh, applied, you know, uh, you know, physics education or science education research, you know, that takes place in the classroom, right? You rarely hear people talk about that. They might talk about retention within a semester, but you don't hear much talk about retention, you know, what, three months, six months, a year after a course. And there, there are practical reasons for that, is that retention studies are very difficult, right? Because, you know, the, 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 the physics programs that we have or chemistry programs or something is made up of disconnected courses for the most part, right? So it's hard to just grab students a year after a course. But, um, but, but that is something that uh, I, I, I dearly hope um, is going to be taken up by the science education community. It's, it's too important. That's what I mean, that's what... That, that's that's what education is is all about. I mean, it's partly about learning the skills to learn new things. Yes, but if if we if we really believe that what we're teaching is is relevant information for these students, that the core concepts are valuable for for what they're going to go on and do in life, then isn't that retention what we're looking for? Yeah, in fact, that one could argue is the only thing that that matters. And uh, I'm just going to tell you that when we uh, take end of semester measures of learning, yes, there is a correlation of, obviously there is a correlation to how much students would end up, you know, remembering um, six months later, a year later. But, you know, again, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop talking here, but uh, the correlation is uh, far from being a hundred percent. In fact, it's we could talk for an hour on every one of your papers. I, I know it. Um, so, <laughs> But I have to, I have to pick up my toddler in forty-five minutes. So, I want to move on to a study you published with with Carl and Brett Gilly in two thousand thirteen. This study seems to have been prompted by the results of another quite concerning finding. Uh, the previous year, Henderson, Dancy, and Newandowski surveyed over seven hundred physics faculty who had tried using RBIS, research-based instruction strategies which are the same strategies that you were really demonstrating with great success in the papers we just talked about. And they found that a third of the faculty reported, reportedly quit using them. Meanwhile, the Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative at the University of British Columbia was in the midst of trying to achieve widespread improvement of teaching and learning at the university, transforming courses to incorporate these research-based methods. And in studying the faculty adopters at UBC, you found that only one out of the 70 stopped using uh, these RBISs. This appears in the article, Use of Research-Based Instructional Strategies, How to Avoid Faculty Quitting. Uh, this is a very optimistic finding, especially compared to what this other group found. And I, I want to get right to the punchline. We know these methods work. So how do we keep it up? What are some of the key supports to ongoing implementation? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, so 
Yeah, this is this is actually quite complex. So uh, let me uh, boil it down. So the number one thing is proper faculty training. Okay, and uh, and and the next is uh, a supportive, you know, departmental environment. So those those were the two things that that we found. But but something of note here that that's important. The reason why only one out of you know seventy faculty stop using these research based you know teaching methods is uh, is because they were supported by the Carl Weinman Science Education Initiative. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. you have to do is take those results as the best possible All right. you know scenario. That is, uh, you know, at your institution or at most other institutions, you can't achieve that. In fact, that's what I'm observing. There's no way you can achieve that. Um, so, uh, but, 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 but there are lessons that you can take from, you know, this ideal case here that you can apply to do better than having a third of faculty just quit. Um, so, yeah, faculty training. Um, so. Whenever we transform courses, for example, at Harvard now, um, then I make sure that the, that the faculty who are interested in tra- transforming their course, that they receive the proper training you know, to do that. That's number one. Number two is while they are actually implementing, you know, say, active learning, then they have to receive ongoing support during the semester. That's important. Um, yeah, so that, that's critical. That's number one. And uh, number two, uh, there are lots of elements, and uh, you know that includes uh, um, having a, su- a supported department. One of them is who teaches those courses the following semesters. So what you do see mm-hmm. often, actually, is someone will put in a lot of work and effort to you know to transform a course, and it'll be effective and everything. But then uh, the subsequent semesters, the people who are assigned to teach the course, they don't adopt these changes. Then, mm-hmm. you know, whatever happened that semester just gets lost. Um, and that happens very often. So at a very minimum, a department needs to uh, assign, you know, people who are all will use the same, uh, you know, transform course, the same transform material for two, three years following the transformation. That's at a minimum right there. And then, of course, there's a department that could allow, you know, faculty to have a little bit of, you know, teaching relief, say, the semester before they transform a course so that they can just spend more time developing the material, you know, things like that. So those are the low-lying fruits, if you will. You know, one, one of the big questions I have in my mind is, is how, do we get, how do we get teachers this support? So that they that they can do this, and you know, I, I know for instance, AAPT has a new faculty workshop, and I'm sure that there is a supportive environment there to get them going, and maybe there's some connections that can be that can be built from there. But uh, you know, outside of outside of say a teaching and learning center, which uh, that not all colleges even have, and you know, they're probably not doing the same thing that the that the the Carl Wyman initiative um, was doing. What does a more, uh, do, you, do you have a vision of what a more robust program could look like? Something that could support faculty across a nation, the world? <laughs> Think big. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, tough, a tough nut to crack here. Um, but, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, Brad, is that there are a lot of different types of, okay, let, let's confine it to the pedagogy in the classroom. 
because of course there's homework, there's all sorts of things you can do to improve learning, right? But let, let, let's confine our discussion to that for now. So in this case, there's many different types of evidence-based, uh, you know, pedagogies that you can use, right? So active learning, you know, really falls on a semi-continuous spectrum. Um, for example, the, mo- the, the, the type of active learning that requires, well, evidence-based active learning, you know, whenever I say active learning, I mean evidence-based because reading the textbook is active learning, right? <laughs> but it's uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's why. I'll, whenever I say active learning, I mean evidence-based. Yeah, so the, the type of active learning that's uh, um, that requires the most training and the most resources is project-based learning, right? Mm. And I would mm. say that's the future, by the way, of science education. Mm. Uh, but it requires an insane amount of resources yeah. and training and so forth. So I, you know, any faculty who's interested in doing that, I do tell them. I explain to them what it requires, and you know, if they have a sound mind, <laughs> they'll 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 then decide not to do that. So I would. Say <laughs> that, <laughs> so. Then, then my suggestion to people is, okay, then use a type of active learning that's really robust, that doesn't require, you know, lots of training, and that, again, robust, that means that'll work, and that would be using clicker questions in the classroom, right? Not even, not even necessarily peer instruction, which is a particular use of clicker questions, but just use clicker questions, basically, give students time and space to think, right? Mm-hmm. And to discuss right, with right. each other, right? If you do that, learning will improve. And it probably will not fail. So I don't know, you know, that was a very long answer to a short question here, but that's the comment I mean to make that when you say, Louis, what can we do to make sure that uh, there's a broader adoption of these methods and that faculties don't quit and so forth? Then I'd say, well, think about the type of active learning you want to put in and try to choose something that's easier to implement. I, I like what you're saying there, that there, there are certain things we can do that aren't that aren't necessarily all that hard, that there are books that have been published on it. There are websites that provide lots of these types of, of clicker questions. You don't even have to create them yourself. They're, they're out there. And, and often by, by default, they do f- end up focusing in on conceptual questions, which as we've been talking about is, is such an important piece and is really where some of the, the deeper long-term learning occurs. So, so right, just by picking up some clicker questions, you're already, uh, on multiple fronts, I think. Yeah, but as as the type of active learning you use is more sophisticated, then the only thing that that I have found to work is the apprenticeship model, and that's unfortunately not that scalable. Yeah, yeah. So that's sad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we better just end today's episode on that note then. Sorry, folks. That's all you get. No, <laughs> no kidding. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. There's, uh, there's always hope. Let's put a pause on this interview for now. This seems like a natural breaking point. Ready to give up and just keep lecturing the olden way and forget all this active learning stuff. No, no, no. Of course not. We persist. Louis indeed shared some models of success. The Carl Wyman Science Education Initiative had enormous success with an apprenticeship model. I've had some thoughts on that, but I'll share those ideas down the road. This conversation with Louis will continue in the next episode of Physics Alive. We move into talking about some publications from 2019 and 2021. It turns out that another challenge is present. 
students can actually feel like they are learning more while passively listening to a polished lecture than engaging in active learning. We'll talk about that finding and what we can do about it. Finally, we dive into his latest work on deliberate practice and how we might take the gains from active learning in the classroom and boost them up even more. That sounds like a great note to end on. You can find links to the journal articles we referenced today in the episode show notes. Just scroll down on your podcast app or go to physicsalive.com slash Louis. Physicsalive.com slash Louis, L-O-U-I-S. While you are at the website, you can leave questions and reflections in the comment box at the bottom of the page. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. These ratings help put Physics Alive on the radar so that other educators can find it. I also want to share that I now have a Patreon page. Producing a podcast is great fun. I love speaking with guests, and this way of serving the physics community fits well with my talents and interests. But producing podcast content is time-consuming and requires fees to maintain a website and podcast hosting services and requires equipment to produce great audio. If you find this podcast valuable, and if you have the means to help support the show, then please hop over to patreon.com slash physicsalive. Support tiers start at $2 per month, with a few higher tiers available for individuals and departments as resources permit. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired by the awesomeness of active learning and that you might contemplate how to help others who are new to the profession. Today's action step? Go check out one of the journal articles we discussed. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive, where Louie and I will continue this conversation. And soon after that, well, you might hear from one of his mentors. Until then, may you ever work yourself into a frenzy about education, and be well.